Our scripture reading today comes from Luke 19, 11 to 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them each 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the shows I really love is Shark Tank. Maybe you're a fan too, but Shark Tank describes an intense encounter with five investor sharks listening to entrepreneurs pitch their perfect business plan. They weigh the potential risk and rewards of investing their hard-earned money. Now, Shark Tank has really raised the level of the importance of entrepreneurship in our time, and I think that's a really good thing. And entrepreneurship, though, is a risky thing, isn't it? Statistics on new startups of businesses tell us just how risky entrepreneurism is. For example, we know from research that 20% of small businesses fail in their first year. 30% of small businesses fail in their second year. And 50% of small businesses fail after five years in business. And 70% of businesses fail in their 10th year of business. Now, another way to say that is this, in five years, one out of two businesses will fail. In 10 years, two out of three businesses have already failed. Clearly, business is a risky business. Now, Webster defines risk as this, an exposure to loss or injury. In other words, all of us know that risk is an inescapable part of life. And ironically, the greatest risk to a business enterprise, to an investment portfolio, to our lives, to your life and mine, may be trying to avoid too much risk. 
And when it comes to risk in our relationships, our daily work, our spiritual growth, the greatest danger we may face may be to play it too safe. Jesus makes this very point in a story in the first century marketplace as he teaches his disciples about faithful and fruitful apprenticeship. If you brought a Bible or you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. Now, today we are continuing a message series entitled <clears throat> Doing Business or Rediscovering Jesus' Kingdom. In the Gospels, all through the Gospels, the theme of risk and reward regularly find their way in Jesus' teaching about kingdom living. And this shouldn't surprise us because Jesus spent the vast majority of his incarnational life on this planet working as a carpenter, working with his hands, running a small business. He understood the inherent risks and rewards of business. And Jesus knew playing it safe may well be the most risky thing we can do. For life in Jesus' kingdom is risky business. Now, as chapter 19 opens, we find Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, and he is in Jericho. And here we encounter the remarkable story of salvation coming to the house of Zacchaeus, this tax collector. Zacchaeus, in his stunning transformation, only serves to heighten, in Luke's contest, the messianic expectation as Jesus inches his way in the text slowly to Jerusalem. Now, as Luke transitions from the story of Zacchaeus, the disciples closest to Jesus have sort of a heart-beating, heightened expectancy. In their minds, they envision King Jesus soon to be seated on a throne in Jerusalem with a kingly crown and them sitting right by him. Luke points out in verse 11 that Jesus' disciples were convinced that the long-awaited Messiah and his kingdom was just around the corner. But Jesus knows otherwise. Jesus knew his followers were in for a long, long wait. And in this long wait, his followers would need to wait well and be about his business. So Jesus drives the point home, not by giving them a lecture, but by telling them a story, a very down-to-earth business story in the first century, a story about risks and rewards. Now, looking at Jesus' business story today, I'd like us to frame our exploration around three characteristics of kingly business. First, that is loving the king. Secondly, stewarding the king's business. And third, anticipating the king's rewards. First, loving the king. So here in verse 12, Jesus begins a story with the main character, who is, of course, a comparison of himself. And the main character is described in the text as a nobleman, a ruler, a royal ruler, but we may say in our context, a wealthy, influential business leader. That's the idea. Now, this nobleman or businessman is going on a long-distance business trip. Jesus emphasizes that to a faraway place to receive a kingdom or to expand his influence. He will then return back home. And Jesus emphasizes in the story, it's a far, far away country, and he is creating the sense that his delay will be a long, long time. There will be a great absence. So he calls his 10 servants to him. They are, in our time, financial managers or probably even more specific private equity investors. And he entrusts to them, you'll notice in the story, 10 minas. Uh, he gives one of them each to his 10 servants, it seems, in the text. Now, one mina was a significant amount of money. It's about three months' wages. So when you gather all 10, that's a lot of money to entrust to his servants. 
the businessman is very clear. He instructs the managers to do something with this money. Now notice verse 13. He says, engage in business until I come. But in verse 14, Jesus gives a bit more background. And Jesus tells us this influential leader was hated by his citizens who let him know in no uncertain terms they wanted nothing to do with him and they hoped he didn't come back. And by pointing out the negative example of hating the nobleman in the story, Jesus is nodding to the Jewish religious leaders who are rejecting him. But he's also, I believe, implicitly calling his disciples to the opposite, that is, of positively loving their king even while he's away for a long time. We must not miss that here in the story, the primary focus of kingdom business is the king himself. That is, to love the king with affection and not merely obligatory duty to the king. Now, in the other Gospels, we see Jesus making this point. One example is Jesus will make this very clearly to Peter. After Jesus' resurrection, he appears to Peter and the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and he makes them breakfast, which is a beautiful scene. And in John chapter 21, we read that after breakfast, Jesus pulls Peter aside and asks him, three times a very important kingdom living question. The question is basically, Peter, do you love me? And after repeating this question, he repeatedly tells Peter, okay, tend my sheep. So what is Jesus doing? <clears throat> what is he saying? He says, love me first, Peter, and then get to my work, do my business. Peter, don't forget that first and foremost, the most important business of doing the king's business is loving the king. And Jesus reminds Peter of this, and I think he reminds all of us of this. That lurking in your heart and my fallen heart is this insidious danger of trying to do the king's business without loving the king. Think with me for a moment of one of Jesus' great stories. It was recorded for us earlier in Luke, Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal sons. Remember the story that the younger son takes his father's inheritance and he squanders it in a far country, but the older son stays at home and he begrudgingly does the father's business, but he remains far, far from his father's loving heart. Both sons blew it, but one son found the kingdom and one didn't. The older son missed out on the kingdom. The joy offered to him in kingdom living because he didn't truly love and pursue a relationship with his father. Jesus reminds us that the first characteristic of kingdom business is loving the king, not with begrudging duty or obligation only, but with an intimate affection of the heart. First characteristic is loving the king. But notice in the story where Jesus goes, and this is the second characteristic, and that is stewarding well the king's business. Look at me at verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know that they had gained what he, they had gained by doing business. And Jesus tells us that when this ruler businessman, that's what he is, returns home, he wants to see how well his financial investment has done, how well his 10 employees or equity investors have done business while he's gone. Well, let's remember, these managers are not owners or uh, they, they have no freedom just to do whatever they want to do. They are stewards with a fiduciary responsibility to the owner. That is to put his interests first. Now, Luke does something very important. In the original language, we see it more. 
The original language has a very important word here. It's a very rare word. And it's translated in the English context as conducting business. Now, this refers specifically in the Greek context for banking and trading. This is why I like the New International Version translation better. I think it captures it. It describes it this way. Put this money to work. A closely related word is used by the Apostle Paul. In 2 Timothy 2.4, he describes the opposite of life and military service. That is, the regular, ordinary, civilian life of everyday life. The root word focuses on our daily responsibilities, mainly our work vocations. So emphasizing this down-to-earth idea in Jesus' story, Jesus is elevating the high importance in kingdom living of our daily duties in life, particularly our work. So how did these 10 employee managers do? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us, fascinating in this story, how all 10 managers did in stewarding the king's business. But we are told about three of them. The first one, who had wisely invested his mina, made 10 more minas. That's impressive. And the business owner is delighted and commends him. For his faithfulness and fruitfulness, he is generously rewarded. A second manager also, who wisely invested the one mina he was given, made five more for the owner. And he too is commended and given notice, commensurate rewards for his faithful fruitfulness. But there is a third manager that now appears in Jesus' story. And we are given quite a contrasting picture. And Luke gives much literary attention, a proportionality to this. I mean, it's importance. Look at me at verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, and which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now we know that this man's words are an open window into his true heart condition. In other words, he played it safe. Luke scholar Kenneth Bailey fills more of the cultural backdrop here. I think it's helpful. Because in this time, there was a great deal of military and political instability in the world where they lived. And with it came hostility toward the rulers or the business leaders. And this manager, simply with all the instability, he is not convinced that this owner would come back, that he would get the kingdom. And Bailey points out that this manager did not want, I like this, did not want to back the wrong horse. So this manager is refusing to risk the owner's assets. He is hedging his bets. As it turns out, when he returns, the horse he failed to back won the race. So when the nobleman or leader returns, this guy is caught simply flat-footed, and he scrambles, and he tries to justify his lack of investment. Now think with me for a moment how disingenuous and derelict this manager truly is. In spite of clearly knowing what is expected of him, that he was accountable to the owner, he simply refused to do his job. So hearing the manager's words, the business owner declares the manager has condemned himself by his very own words. In other words, this is not accidental or ignorant unfaithfulness. This is premeditated rejection of the owner as a person, as well as an intentional and deliberate rejection of his business enterprise. And Jesus paints the most intense <laughs> picture of the consequences for this guy, right? When you read it, his mina is taken away and given to the manager who made 10 more minas, <laughs> to which the others around him go, hey, that's not fair, Jesus. And Jesus responds with a rather shocking ending to this story. 
It is sober. It is jaw-dropping. And it warns us of the serious consequences of unfaithfulness to him, to the king, and to his kingdom while his disciples wait for his return. And notice, here in this story, Jesus is making a big comparison. In other words, in a similar way, faithful and fruitful stewardship is required for any business enterprise, so too is faithful stewardship required in doing the business of King Jesus in advancing his kingdom. And that raises the question for all of us, what is the king's business Jesus is referring to? As his apprentices, what are we stewarding? The psalmist reminds us of the broad scope of the king's business in our kingdom stewardship. For example, Psalm 24.1, we read, The earth is the Lord and everything in it. And Psalm 103, verse 19, captures this. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. In other words, King Jesus owns it all, and his reign covers it all. 20th century prime minister of the Netherlands, Abraham Kuyper, describes King Jesus and his kingdom brilliantly. Kuyper said this, There is not a square inch of the entire universe in which Jesus does not declare, This is mine, this belongs to me. As his image bearers and as his apprentices, the stewardship of the king's business is vast. It is comprehensive. And it includes, at its very foundation, the creation mandate, the great commandment, and the great commission. Let me unpack that just a moment. The creation mandate is given to us in Genesis 1 and 2. And it calls us, while we wait for the king's return, to be fruitful and to multiply and to cultivate and keep the planet in which we have been entrusted. The creation mandate not only calls us to creation care, but reminds us of the high stewardship of our daily work, your daily work, my daily work, whether it is paid or unpaid, and that each of us one day will give an account to God for our faithfulness and fruitfulness in this matter. The king's business also includes the great commandment. Jesus summarizes the entire Old Testament in our command to love God and love our neighbor. Our faithfulness and fruitfulness in loving God wholeheartedly and our neighbor with grace, grace, truth, and justice is a stewardship to which all of us will one day give an account to God for, our king when he returns. But the king's business also includes the Great Commission. The Great Commission is the commission Jesus gave to his church right before his ascension into heaven. That is, to be his witnesses and make disciples of every nation. In other words, we will give an account to our king for our faithfulness and fruitfulness in stewarding Jesus' global disciple-making mission. And it is not surprising that Jesus places this story of faithful and fruitful kingdom stewardship in the context of the marketplace, the context of our daily work. Because in our daily lives of work, of loving, serving others through our various vocations, and in our local church community, the cultural mandate, the great commandment, and the great commission, all intersect in a seamless fabric of kingdom faithfulness. The first characteristic of kingdom business is loving the king. The second one is stewarding the king's business, but let's not miss. Third, it is anticipating the king's reward. Now notice in our story, the nolem and the businessman return means several things, including accountability, commendation, and great reward. We must not miss how Jesus emphasizes the importance of greater responsibility of reward for faithful, fruitful stewardship in kingdom living. 
When we read the Bible from cover to cover, there's a great deal about rewards. Rewards of a righteous life, a life devoted to Christ and his kingdom. And let's remember earlier in Luke chapter 18, Peter basically says, hey, Jesus, we've risked everything to follow you. <laughs> we left our families, our fishing business to follow you. Peter is implying, hey, Jesus, there's a risk and reward thing here. <laughs> we risked it all. What rewards do we have? Now, notice Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter for this risk-reward equation or for even wanting reward. Instead, Jesus reassures Peter that all who follow Jesus and do his kingdom business will receive great rewards now in this life and in the life to come. It is important to note that while both faithful managers were given equal opportunity in Jesus' story, they were not guaranteed equal outcomes. Do you see that? nor were they given the same amount of reward. And we are reminded with Jesus' themes of reward and judgment in our story that who we serve, the choices we make, and how we live every day really matters. Now, maybe you're listening today and you're thinking, I'm not really sure if I believe in God, let alone that Jesus died on the cross for me and rose again from the dead let alone that Jesus is who he says he is and that he longs to have an intimate relationship with me. This faith step <laughs> seems way too risky for me. And Jesus' parable, doesn't it, confronts us with the truth that we must decide if Jesus is indeed the appointed king, if he is the king who he said he is, it's important for us to ponder whether we embrace him as our king or not. Maybe you are struggling with the Christian faith. Whether believing in Jesus and following him is really the way to go. Is it really worth it? <laughs> like the third manager, you don't want to bet on the wrong horse, so to speak. Now, one of the most brilliant thinkers in our history was 17th century French physicist and philosopher Blaise Pascal. Pascal wrestled with this reality of choosing to follow Jesus or not. The reality of risk and reward in the choices we make. And he described faith as a wager. I like this. He describes it like a wager a gambler makes on a coin toss. And Pascal makes the case that you and I must too make a choice. Pascal writes, listen carefully. Let us weigh up the gain and loss involved in calling heads that God does exist. Let us assess the two cases. If you win, you win everything. If you lose, you lose nothing. Do not hesitate then to wager that God does exist. And then Pascal says, I should be much more afraid of being mistaken and then finding out that Christianity is true than of being mistaken in believing it to be true. Maybe you believe in Jesus, but in your heart you're struggling whether doing Jesus and his business, his kingdom business, is the right choice for you to make. And in that risk-reward equation, all of us must ponder. You may be truly wondering in your heart, is following Jesus really worth it? Martyr missionary Jim Elliott weighed his choices carefully, and he chose to follow Jesus, King Jesus, because he knew it was worth it. Jim Elliott put it this way, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Let me simply say that Jesus is reminding us that the greatest risk you and I can ever take in life is to reject him as our king, our Lord and Savior. 
So how are we stewarding the king's business? Let me suggest three questions for your personal reflection today. First, how is your love deepening? Jesus' words are challenging, aren't they? Do you love me more than these? This was the question Jesus asked Peter and the one I believe he asked each one of us. Be honest. Are there competing loves in your heart and mind that are crowding out our growing intimacy with Jesus? Could it be that you are attempting to do the king's business without deepening your love for the king? And how are you cultivating love for Jesus, knowing Jesus more fully and being more fully known by him? Is your love for Jesus deepening? But also, is your love for others deepening? Are you experiencing the Holy Spirit's transforming love in your family and in your relationships and in your faith community? Is your love deepening for our brothers and sisters in our local church family? Jesus said that our witness depends on that, that the world will know we are his disciples by our love for one another. How is your love deepening? Secondly, how is your stewardship expanding? As an apprentice of Jesus, we embrace a posture of stewardship of all that we have been entrusted to for all of our life. Yes, our time, our talents, our treasures, our relationships, our influence. See, stewardship is not a static thing. It is a dynamic thing as we continue in our quest for greater spiritual formation in Christ-likeness. Dallas Willard, in one of his brilliant books, The Divine Conspiracy Continued, writes this. A loving God is now ruling. Therefore, he has a holistic vision of human life that necessarily includes all political, economic, and social realms, not just religious realms, along with the innumerable personal kingdoms that compose all of human activity. Dallas rightly captures the sense that we live in a God-bathed world, and a part of that God-bathed world is the business we do. How are you stewarding the kingdom you have been entrusted? All of us have a kingdom. It's what God has given us control over and influence over. It can be our bodies, our relationships, our families, our businesses, our jobs, our money, our wealth. How are we stewarding the influence we have been given in our family, in our workplace, in our community, in our city, in our nation? How are we stewarding our own self-care and lifestyle we live? And how are we stewarding our generational wisdom and influence to others? In one of our Made to Flourish learning communities, I was with an urban pastoral leader who serves an under-resourced congregation. And during that learning community, he shared his heart to those of us who serve congregations that have more resources. And what he said to me really stood out. He said, what we need most, besides a growing relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ and other congregations, is for you who have access to open doors of access to help us. Help us, he said, with opportunities for job creation. Be advocates for us in policy and community. How are we stewarding our talents and influence for the marginalized and the vulnerable and the under-resourced? Lastly, how is your diligence growing? Well, Jesus' story about the first century workplace, investments in business, are about more than our daily work. They are not less than that. It's not incidental Jesus uses the story of marketplace business to describe the story of all kingdom business. The gospel of the kingdom profoundly connects our Sunday worship with our Monday work. We too are engaged in business for the king of kings every day. Did Paul have Jesus' story of business 
of three business managers in mind as he wrote to the church at Colossae? I think so, or at least perhaps so. In Colossians 3, 23 and 24, Paul says this, do your work heartily for human, not for bosses, human bosses, but for the Lord Jesus. And Paul then reminds the Colossians, they will one day receive great rewards. So let me ask you, if Jesus gave you your annual job review this past year, what would Jesus say? What would Jesus say about your character, how you've treated others, how you have demonstrated love for Christ? What would he say about your work ethic and the excellence of your work? See, a large part of kingdom living takes place where God has placed you and me to do kingdom business the majority of our week. Dorothy Sayers said it well, the only Christian work is work well done. The greatest testimony to the timeless truth of the gospel many of us have as we wait for the king's return is the quality of work we do each and every day. A primary way we love God and our neighbor is the paid and unpaid work we are called to do throughout the week. Christ can be, we are church for Monday, equipping you for that very reality. And while we wait for Jesus the King to return, let us be faithful and fruitful apprentices of Jesus. Let us love the King well. Let us steward the King's business well. Let's joyfully anticipate the rewards of the King who will one day look at us we trust in our lives and say, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of the master. I will put you in charge of greater things. Yes, kingdom business is risky business. But you and I can be confident the rewards far out surpass the risk. Why? Because a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb declare it.